Okay. Hi everyone. Um, so yeah, that's uh, kind of really summarised my background quite well. Uh, my main interests are in uh, patterns of emotion, uh, psychological illness, and also how these kind of interact with biological factors. So things like inflammation, uh, cortisol, all these things that are going on uh, constantly and kind of interact with uh, how we feel. So uh, this kind of represents an extension of that interest in looking at uh, genetic factors that underlie uh, how we adjust to the stressors uh, of our everyday lives. So the title is Hereditary Links, uh, Natural Hazards and Human Health. So first of all, I'm going to just talk about some of those hazards. So um, we know um, that there are many different types of disasters that can occur uh, and occur regularly and frequently across the world. And what I, I've done here is just categorise them, uh, just not, not really exclusively, but just into some of the different categories that, uh, that uh, seem to occur frequently. So we have things like technological disasters, uh, things like terror attacks and drought and uh, nuclear meltdowns like Sellafield uh, and, and so forth. So uh, these... <laughs> And Carlo on a Saturday night. No, uh, but um, so so just to kind of get an idea of the magnitude of this, uh, you know, Rand have a database of terrorist attacks, and uh, from '68 to 2004, uh, you can see that there was almost 20,000, about 90,000 people died in these, uh, or were injured, and 25 people died in these. So it's a huge uh, kind of uh, effect, and we know from looking at 9/11 and uh, attacks like this that there are reciprocal effects across, that kind of ripple across the population. So it's not just those that are directly affected. Uh, there is a kind of a, a culture of uh, fear that's created by these so um, it is interesting to kind of follow up people and look at how, how do they adjust to this and what kind of effects does it have on them so uh, there are also medical disasters like uh, epidemics of flu that we know at the moment and more long-term things like the HIV epidemics and TB and malaria so um, that's just a kind of a brief uh, overview of those kind of different disaster situations so um, anyway, if the, and, and also if there's any, if anyone has any questions or wants clarification at any time, just uh, shout or whatever, and I'll uh, try and do my best to clarify. <coughs> so when I was looking at this literature of how do people adjust to disaster situations, uh, the main review that I could find was uh, by Norris in 2002. So what he did was he took 160 studies of how people reacted to disaster situations, and uh, he looked at the period over 1981 to 2001 uh, and what he found was that as you'd expect there were specific psychological problems things like post-traumatic stress disorder uh, and then there was non-specific distress just people felt generally more stressed but you know they wouldn't have reached the threshold for uh, kind of clinical disorders and there was also health problems and uh, chronic problems in living and uh, resource loss and these health problems they wouldn't necessarily be a direct result of the disaster in terms of uh, you know increasing infections and, and things like that due to uh, sanitary prob sanitation problems and things it it it, it could be that um, you know the, the stress levels are leading to uh, exacerbating current illness and uh, kind of um, lead le leading to uh, new kind of illnesses uh, to a higher degree also so uh, this is quite a a brief study. So this is just a, a the study that I'll present is a, a brief enough study looking at the effect of a natural disaster, how that interacts with a, a specific gene, and how it predicts self-rated health. So I chose self-rated health because I think this kind of captures some of these kind of uh, ideas here, like psychological problems, distress, health problems. It's kind of a broad index of uh, subjective and objective uh, health or, or physical and mental health. So. 
Um, Norris in this review as well, what he did was he looked at what kind of predictors are there in terms of uh, understanding how people adjust to disaster and obviously enough what he found was that the severity of exposure is the key factor. So people that were you know, at ground zero, people that were near, near there had family members or whatever, if you take the example of 9-11, they're the people that uh, had the most problems afterwards. And there's also other predictors that I don't look at uh, in this paper that are things like um, have you uh, pre-disaster pre, uh, psychiatric illnesses, uh, do you have a diminished level of psychosocial resources, uh, also things like um, uh, middle, middle age seems to be a, a, an issue as well. Uh, so there's all these different factors that kind of come into play to determine how uh, you will react to when something like this happens. So. Uh, what I'm interested in is how, how does genetics come into this kind of equation? So, um, typically when people used to think about genetics, they used to think, right, you have a gene, it kind of gives you a, a vulnerability to an illness or a disorder, and then you, you uh, will more than likely get that disorder. But, uh, you know, then people, uh, you know, that was kind of very biomedical standpoint. Uh, and then, you know, psychologists would look at things like twin studies and children of twin studies and they would kind of say, well, you know, we can see here that genetics takes up 60% of the variation, whereas 40% is due to the environment and so on. But really what we're doing when we do that is we're just kind of putting broad statistical uh, terms on something that we uh, don't, don't really fully understand or have any kind of process or mechanism-based uh, models to kind of uh, to, to, to really flesh out. So now what we can do is we can look at identifiable genes, measured genes. So we can look at, since the, um, now that the, uh, the, the genome is available, you can actually pick out specific aspects of the gene that are measured and individual uh, variants within, within the genome. And we can actually see, uh, the, first of all, the effects of those genes. And also we can see how do these measured genes interact with measured stressors. So uh, we've gone from not only, not just looking at uh, the percentage of, say if you take something like schizophrenia, 70% you know might be genetic uh, and 30% the environment, this would be the old model. Now what we can say is if you look at say a gene related to dopamine, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, that uh, if you have a certain version of this gene and it interacts with the amount of stressors you're exposed to uh, as a child, then that will kind of predict whether, if you look at, say, twins that have the same uh, gene, the, the same, uh, they're 100% alike in genes, that they might actually have divergent outcomes or whatever. And there's different uh, ways that that can occur. So there's gene-by-environment interactions where uh, different genes have when combined with stressors will have different outcomes and there's also uh, this new area of epigenetics where you can say that uh, a stressor will actually impact on your genes through different uh, biological processes to mutilate the genes which means that they are not expressed to the same extent so you can have what is what appears to be from might be a uh, you know a so-called good gene when when it's uh, mutilated it's no longer expressed and then then you would actually be uh, at risk of a disorder. So uh, they've shown this in schizophrenia and you can see that because there is divergence between twins uh, in, the, in the incidence that it, it can be due to these epigenetic and gene by environment interaction factors. So that's the kind of uh, uh, model that I want to try and apply to uh, adjustment to disaster situations. And this uh, whole literature kind of uh, 
it, it, it comes very much from uh, certain groups like CASPI did the seminal study in 2003 on this and this was published in Science and the last time I checked he had uh, two, nearly two and a half thousand citations in six years so it's a, there's been a huge kind of explosion of interest in this and um, of course this is quite dangerous as well from a kind of a you know, from from the, the the different errors that can occur in publications uh, and 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 so on. So, when they reviewed this literature in 2006, they published three different reviews, and they were they're all like well cited and really well written, and they kind of go through the whole gene by environment uh, theory. But this seminal study in 2003, uh, just to illustrate um, how this kind of uh, mechanisms work, because it's kind of abstract. We can see that uh, <coughs> what we have here is the proportion of uh, the self-reported depressed symptoms and that's the probability of a major depressive episode and this specific gene here is called the serotonin transporter gene that they're look, we're looking at variation in it here and this releases a or this is involved in the bioavailability of serotonin and serotonin is very important for uh, depression you know the drugs that you take if you're depressed are largely SSRI serotonin reuptake inhibitors so they're kind of uh, in many cases just correcting uh, for the kind of imbalance that might result from having a certain uh, genotype and also uh, incurring different stressful events. So what we can see is that people in the sample that didn't incur any stressful events, so these people have not incurred like, what they have a list of major stressful events, uh, it didn't really matter what, their, uh, what gene they had in terms of their level of depression. Whereas if they had incurred say four or more stressors, you can see that there's a large divergence so this gene is related to greater bioavailability of serotonin and this is in the middle and this is lower. So you can see that there does appear to be a very uh, strong uh, interaction but even though this is what appears to be the case, we can see now uh, six years later that because of this explosion of interest there's been two uh, meta-analyses this year and uh, the first one uh, was in JAMA and it said that it concluded that there was no evidence that the 5-HT serotonin transporter alone uh, or in interaction with stressful events is associated with an elevated risk of depression. So it's quite damning for this literature and it kind of just to frame it in terms of how all of these findings that we may need to be replicated multiple times and the Caspi and others were the first to call for these kind of meta-analyses and it hasn't bode well for the kind of the results that they found. So this is replicated by uh, Munafo in biological psychiatry using the same, or using a slightly different methodology, but showing the same result that the serotonin transporter didn't have a main effect on depression or an interaction effect. So um, like this is only one gene and there are many other, others out there and uh, some others have held up to meta-analysis like the monomase oxidase uh, gene, which has been shown to kind of uh, interact with child abuse to predict later depression. There's about eight studies that have kind of shown that there seems to be a very robust effect there. But uh, in general, so we need lots of meta-analyses and we need to kind of be very sceptical of some of these findings, uh, I think just, just in terms of uh, as researchers and also as people just observing the literature. Uh, so uh, then, then just to kind of go into why uh, gene by environment or why disasters might be a better way to test gene by environment interactions than have been previously uh, done previously. So uh, if you think of uh, say that last study where different versions of the serotonin transporter gene interact with the kind of stresses that you incur in order to predict your depression but there is a problem here from a kind of a, a causal standpoint in that 
your genes can also determine the amount of stressors that you encounter. So if I have a genetic vulnerability uh, that you know, is related to aggression and impulsivity, that can mean that I'm more likely to you know, take risks to actually go out there and, uh, in, uh, and uh, come in contact with these stressors, life stressors to you know, lose my house due to gambling or something like that. So it, it kind of shows that there is this correlation between your genes and the environment that can kind of confound uh, some of these studies, uh, though that sometimes they try to control for it. And another aspect is that if my parents are likely to have a similar genetic profile as me, then, they may, then, then if they have also this genetic risk towards impulsivity, they may treat me a bit differently, and that may affect, uh, again, how, how many stressors I incur uh, throughout my life. So there are these problems there. So what, what a simple, uh, one simple solution to this is to take stressors that are completely exogenous to uh, the person. So there's no way uh, that I can, my impulsivity can cause an earthquake or can cause uh, you know, other natural disasters. So this idea is that um, your genetic profile shouldn't be related to something that is a natural disaster. And it kind of gives uh, an ideal opportunity to test some of these gene by environment, environment interaction effects. Your impulsivity could determine where you live. You could yeah. choose to live in there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so that's one thing that you have to consider. All right. Um, so it may, it may not be a big factor in, in that case. Maybe they need some other stuff. Yeah, like if you choose to live on the edge of a volcano, uh, then you know you're probably, <laughs> you're probably your 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 genes will probably correlate with your exposure to lava. But um, the in in I try to I I try to do something about that later on. I just. Uh, just to kind of see is there a correlation between your expo level of exposure and uh, your gene, uh, which is one way of kind of factoring that in. So uh, just to summarize that bit then, then, if exposure to an exogenous stressor and the assortment of alleles at the time of gamete formation, which is just your genetic profile, are both randomly assigned and non-correlated with each other prior and with your uh, health prior to the stressor, then this design can be considered a natural experiment. So there are some of the kind of characteristics that need to be met for this to be kind of considered viable. So some of the previous studies that have been done, uh, the first one uh, using this kind of methodology was by Kilpatrick et al. in uh, Archives of General Psychiatry. So what they showed was a kind of not, not, not just a, a straightforward gene by environment interaction, it was showing that people with uh, genetic vulnerabilities, so these are people with the short, short serotonin transporter or the long short, so these, are, uh, these have a genetic vulnerability, they're exposed to Hurricane Katrina uh, to a high level and then they have low levels of social support as well, so they had to have low levels of social support as well in order to uh, have an increased prevalence of depression in blue and post-traumatic stress disorder in red following uh, the Hurricane Katrina. So that was an interesting one, and uh, it was followed up by two more studies of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, the first one by, uh, well, Amstatter is a author on both of these, and what he showed was the RGS2 gene, which has been linked to anxiety. Uh, having the version that kind of predisposes you to anxiety, uh, if you were highly exposed <laughs> to the hurricane, you had higher levels of uh, generalized anxiety disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder following uh, the hurricane. So it's this kind of design that I, I kind of wanted to try and implement. <coughs> so uh, this is, yeah, um, this is the kind of model that I use. I won't go into this in much detail now, but just to say that uh, what I'm looking at is basically just 
what happens before the illness, which is this is your genes. This is or what happens before the disaster, which is your your genes are here. This is the earthquake, which is which is occurring, and this is your self-rated health. And these are all the other things that kind of happen in between. I don't measure these in this study. I want to measure them in future studies, but it's kind of just to try and explain how the different processes occur, whereby something bad happens and you may actually your health may be worse afterwards. And some of the things are, you know, that uh, you feel, if, you know, one of the main things that happens after, say, 9-11 is that there's a meta-analysis recently of studies showing that due to the threat to life of 9-11, risk-taking increased. So the uh, psychology behind it, uh, put most simply, is that when I feel negative emotion, that can uh, undermine my ability to self-control because I just want to go out and have a few drinks or kind of to get rid of uh, those kind of negative emotions or impulse buying and things like that. So a lot of those uh, behaviours can increase following uh, severe stress. And some of the mediators are things like how well am I able to control uh, my behaviour and my emotions and uh, uh, other things like that. And obviously that's determined by some of these uh, predisposing factors here. But really what I'm interested in is severe stress are occurring here your genotype here and how do they interact to predict your level of self-rated health afterwards. So um, just to go into some detail then on the event that I was looking at. So this is the CC earthquake in uh, Taiwan. Uh, <coughs> it occurred in 1999 in the middle of the night. So on uh, September 21st and uh, it was huge earthquake, 7.3 on the Richter scale, and we're talking uh, there's about two, nearly two and a half thousand people died as a result of the earthquake. So this was, uh, to put it in context, it was about one in a thousand people uh, on the island of Taiwan actually died as a result of this earthquake. So it's, it was large scale, and you know that means that I suppose everyone had a friend of a friend or a relative of a friend or something like this that would have actually died in this earthquake and it collapsed over 100,000 homes, there was 9 billion in damage, so it was a huge effect, and it wasn't just the earthquake itself, there was aftershocks that kind of kept going afterwards for about a month or so, and uh, some of these were well up to Richter scale as well, so that's just to kind of give you an idea of the kind of the extent of the event. And then you can see here that, um, just to kind of look at some of the distribution of the damage, uh, from what I've seen anyway, it seems to be that the distribution of uh, the amount of, this is the amount of, uh, this is just where, the, where it hit and then and the kind of the, the, shock, the shocks across it. So it was very, uh, you know, it was kind of just to the south of the island, but the distribution of houses that fell were mainly uh, just, just due to the population distribution really wasn't any other kind of, uh, didn't seem to be much of other variation in it. So the big blue dots had like 500 uh, buildings collapsed. <coughs> so. Uh, it was distributed across the whole island. Uh, you can see some of the pictures there. Just it was uh, like buildings toppling over and collapsing and things like that. And uh, so, it, like it, it does kind of. It is something that would stick and strike people quite hard. And <coughs> the, if, if you talk about the subjective impact you have from the very highest end of the scale, where you think people, people here whose mother and brother. Uh, would have died and they were looking for help and nobody was there to help them so obviously that's very severe and then just the kind of the general impression uh, this is from somebody uh, reporting on or just people gave their impressions on the BBC website uh, for 
on the, in the weeks that followed but this person here kind of describes it really well saying it was like the earth was alive beneath them and something like a genie was out to break out or they were waiting for the monster to come back at them so kind of give you this it gives you this idea of like this this feeling of anxiety that people have when you know they're this unexpected uh earthquake could pop back up at them at any time <coughs> so um that's the kind of subjective impact so just uh, to go into some of the measures that I use then to try and gauge how this may have impacted on people. Uh, so I just use a self-rated health measure. This is a measure of objective and subjective health and it predicts, like it's a pretty good measure. It's been shown to predict uh, mortality in, the elder, in elderly people better than uh, objective reports of clinicians. Uh, it's been shown to be affected by traumatic experiences like war and uh, the death of a child and so on. So it, it, it definitely does seem to pick up the kind of effects that I'm looking for. Uh, even there's a study by Golding of sexually victimized children and it shows that their trajectories of uh, mental health or, or, their, or of self-rated health are discriminated very well uh, using this measure. So, and again, looking at uh, this study by Benjamini uh, looked at war exposure in veterans and showed that uh, it did predict different patterns of self-rated health over 20 years. So uh, what I wanted to do as well is to pick out people that were likely to uh, show gene by environment interaction. So I looked at the kind of heritability of self-rated health and I found that this was quite, this was highest between 45 and 74. So I look at that group and uh, I also, um, I looked at some papers by, from the, this Taiwanese data and they've previously showed a relationship between the apolipoprotein gene and self-rated health but my question was because uh, genes have been shown not to I operate in isolation but they interact with stressors is this relation here uh, that's previously identified modified by exposure to the earthquake so uh, that was the kind of main question of the study so this particular gene uh, the apolipoprotein E gene uh, uh, or a polypoprotein e gene, it's uh, a cholesterol tra transporter, so it's involved in many parts of the cell, uh, and it's particularly involved in maintaining neurons, repairing them after injury. So uh, if we look at kind of previous uh, kind of gene-by-environment interaction studies using this uh, gene, what you can see is that American footballers or boxers or people with TBI, traumatic brain injury, when this kind of neuronal damage occurs, because epsilon-4 is deficient in repairing the cell, then you see that this will actually, they'll have a, a quicker a cognitive decline after this injury if they have epsilon-4 versus if they have other versions of uh, the gene. So that's kind of a, 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 a more physical impact, whereas what you can see as well um, that there is divergence in patterns of depression following psychological stress. So people who are caregivers of those with Alzheimer's, which is, you know, it's very stressful. If they have epsilon-4, they actually don't, uh, they, they find this process really stressful and they have higher rates of uh, depression following uh, the several years of caregiving. So um, you do kind of see this divergence based on which of these genes you have, your profile of these genes, and also what kind of stressors you're exposed to. So uh, to go into some of the bi more biological studies then, these have been done with uh, gene knockout uh, mice, trans transgenic mice, and also uh, <coughs> with uh, monkeys. And what they've shown is that they can they can make sure that the uh, the, the mice have copies of this epsilon four allele, 
And what it does is it, when they're exposed to stressors, they get neuropathological changes in their amygdala. That's the fear center of the brain. And because that, uh, that fear center is kicking off and reacting quite, quite, quite much when, uh, or very much when uh, stressors occur, you get uh, higher levels of cortisol uh, because the hypothalamic pituitary is, uh, axis is uh, dysregulated. And this can kind of lead to lots of different health effects. You know, cortisol can lead to... Uh, uh, bo bo um, Bone, thinning of the bones and all these other types of uh, health effects like immune effects and so on. So <coughs> what we see then is that uh, you can see gene by environment effects in monkeys, in mice and in people based on carrying this epsilon 4 allele. So what I suggested in the study was that people with the epsilon 4 allele would react differently to the stress of the earthquake and that that would predict a more detrimental pattern of self-rated health one year later. So uh, just to go into the study design then, uh, the IV here is the level of exposure to the stress of the earthquake. So you mean, yeah. you mean independent variable rather than Yeah. <laughs> Alright. Uh, we don't have instrumental variables in psychology yet, but... Uh, Moderator, the assortment of alleles at the time of gamete formation and the DV is the self-rated health. So what we expect is that high levels of subjective, that's kind of feeling very fearful at the time of the earthquake, objective and the measure of objective exposure here is uh, if you've had property damage or if you've had to move from your home as a result of the earthquake and then a combination of both, that that will predict uh, decreased levels of self-rated health a year later only uh, amongst those possessing the epsilon 4 allele or to a greater extent amongst those uh, possessing the epsilon 4 allele. So the sample here, it's a, a cohort of older adults aged uh, 54 to 74, about 720 people and uh, they come from the 2000 social environment and biomarkers of ageing study in Taiwan. Uh, more males than females and not very well educated, about 27% of secondary school or better. And then I have a measure of ethnicity in there as well, just in case uh, the gene profile differs based on ethnicity. And <coughs> the measures then, uh, subjective exposure, it was how you felt at the time of the earthquake from not scared to extremely scared. So it was normally distributed. You had, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty, pretty normally distributed. And then um, objective exposure was, as I mentioned a minute ago, property damage, leaving the home, and that was 18% of people. And then uh, combined exposure is about 44%. That was just adding both subjective and objective together. So. Uh, about 14% of people have a copy of the risk gene or two copies. Not very many people have two copies, maybe five or six in the whole sample. And then uh, uh, the dependent variable then was self-rated health, so from one poor to five excellent, and that was normally distributed as well. And I included some covariates, like because uh, uh, apoepsin 4 is involved in Alzheimer's from the age of 75 onwards. Even though I'm looking at a younger sample, I wanted to control for cognitive functioning just in case that was a problem and it's also related to smoking. So this goes from 1 to 5? The self-rated health. Right. Yeah. Not going to be normally distributed. Uh, it's well, like... You've five bins, so it's... Yeah, well, it's like... It looks like a normal distribution, but yeah, could do with having a bit more resolution uh, <coughs> so um, the, so so we need to do some preliminary analysis then because uh, 
first of all, we wanted to see are these are the people with uh, APO epsilon four different than other carriers? Uh, so there was no difference on things like uh, age and gender and education and so on. So it didn't seem to be related to those kind of demographic characteristics or cognition, anything that we looked at. Uh, and then what we wanted to do also, which is quite important, uh, I think it's called. Kevin mentioned is that we wanted to see was there a relationship between having the risk gene and being expo highly exposed to the earthquake and there wasn't any relationship there either so what we're seeing is that uh, you know you could say that if you have a risk gene that you're more likely to live in a you know a, a neighborhood where the housing structure is poor and you're more likely to be uh, experience this kind of damage but that didn't seem to be the case uh, in in the data here so <coughs> that was kind of a preliminary analysis and then we wanted to see is exposure to the earthquake randomly distributed as well so are there people that are more likely to be exposed and there was some 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 uh, groups there as well so younger adults were more likely than older adults to experience the objective effects so this is like having your property damage or having to move so younger when i say younger here it's middle-aged people rather than elderly people and i'm not sure why that's the case uh, so there was kind of a non-random component. I was surprised that there was no kind of education correlation with exposure to the earthquake. You'd imagine, like I was mentioning, that people from uh, poor neighbourhoods where the structure of the housing was probably less secure, that they might have more damage and have to move from their homes, but it didn't seem to be the case. could be a threshold effect in reporting or something like that. It seemed to be like just across the whole of Taiwan. Um, so, uh, and then females were more likely than males to report to experience high levels of fear in response to the earthquake. So that's um, just non-random variation in the subjective exposure to the, the earthquake as people were reporting higher levels of fear. Do they, do, they, do they report higher levels of fear in general? Probably, like in, just in, like in general, in yeah. yeah, they would, yeah, I think so. Uh, uh, so this increased likelihood was sim so the main thing is that although there was a correlation between exposure and different demographic characteristics it didn't differ by gen uh, genetic by whether or not you had the uh, APO epsilon 4 so that was kind of important anyway so then just to have a look at some of the, the basic relationships then what we see here is that uh, being highly exposed so these are people objective exposure they've had uh, damage to their homes and so on that a year after the earthquake their level of self-rated health is lower than the people that uh, haven't had damage to their homes and then uh, on the subjective side then uh, people one standard deviation so that's the, the last two points uh, on the graph they had low self-rated health a year later compared to those with low exposure that's uh, the first two points on the graph so uh, <coughs> and there was a small main effect then of the gene uh, on self-rated health as well so people with epsilon 4 have self, lower self-rated health as a main effect. But what we're interested in is the interaction between both. So these are the results here, <coughs> the main results. Um, what it shows is that, first of all, it's uh, just to repeat the, that the level of exposure decreases self-rated health across objective and subjective exposures and the combination. Uh, and then there's kind of, this is a more of, a, it's fairly marginal, uh, reduction based on the the, geno the the genotype but that kind of drops out when you include the interaction and the interaction effects are significant here showing that people that have high exposure to the earthquake and that have this risk gene have self lower self-rated health a year later compared to people with uh, the, the other versions of the, the gene 
or who weren't exposed very much to the earthquake. So I have graphs to illustrate that, but um, what we see is that the objective one uh, drops to a marginal effect when uh, different um, covariates, lots of covariates are included. When just a few covariates, like basic covariates are included, it stays in like age and gender and things like that, but when cognition and smoking and everything else, chronic illness is put in, it kind of drops just slightly out. <coughs> Five point scale, so there's no, yeah. no harm in kind of trying to just model the. I might try that, yeah. Um, so, this is the uh, subjective result there. So, what you see is that high exposure amongst those with the epsilon 4 gene brings people from 3, which I think is average health, to closer to 2, which is not very good health, I think. So that's kind of subjective is a bit, you know, it's not as good as objective because you do have people reporting different levels of exposure in general or just different levels of fear in general. But the objective is a bit better. The objective is a bit better. What we see is that people with, who had to move from their homes who had property damage a year after the earthquake, their self-rated health is lower than those uh, without epsilon 4 gene. And that's... Uh, uh, and it doesn't occur, there's no difference amongst the low exposure. So that's kind of the main result of this study. Sorry, just, <coughs> just what you're the yeah. yeah. So that's That's if you have any copy of it, but there are five people, I think, with two copies, but I can't really do anything with that. Uh, and then that's just when you combine both of them there together to subjective and objective, you get the same results slightly more significant. So uh, there's lots of limitations on this uh, study. It's uh, mainly just that when uh, some things I'm concerned about are like when people are reporting how exposed they were to the earthquake, even things that are meant to be objective like property damage, uh, like somebody <coughs> could have half their living room destroyed, they say property damage, where somebody else, you know, plates may fall off the shelves or something and they say property damage so you know it'd be good to have a more a clear version of how much damage there was and then there's memory distortions as well people are kind of remembering what it was like a year previous so what we need is then longitudinal data then to kind of see uh, to make sure that these aren't differences that existed prior to the uh, uh, earthquake and also I want to look at some of the mediating pathways like in the model that I described how is it that these uh, stressors are getting under the skin and how is it that they're affecting behavior and uh, maybe biomarkers and then this is leading to maybe decrements in self-rated health. <coughs> so just to summarize then, self-rated health, uh, it's reduced in the APO epsilon 4 carriers who are either subjectively, have subjectively, subjectively perceived the earthquake as disturbing or for whom the event had severe personal objective consequences and uh, 
the, the difference then in terms of the health was half a standard deviation on the objective measure. So uh, people who are objectively, objectively exposed and had the risk gene moved from average health halfway to not so good health. Uh, and the conclusion then is that potentially exog exogenous stressors can interact with genetic vulnerability to explain trajectories in physical and mental health. So this is kind of like the, one of the a preliminary study to kind of follow up with um, more detailed measures uh, with this kind of a paradigm. <coughs> so that's it. Great. Um, let's take some Yeah. It was, wasn't so much that you have certain genes and you live in an area that affects your health, but actually uh, it affects your genes as well. So they got two twins, yeah. whatever, one of them went to, to the North Pole or something for a year and they, and they came back and their genes were actually... Oh, yeah. Yeah. New area of yeah, that's, yeah, that's epigenetics, but it's, uh, it's slightly different. But what, what, what I'm saying is that if you've, so say there's good gene and bad gene, something happens and then if you don't, if you have the bad gene then because you don't have enough like genetic resources, if you could think of it that way, you react poorly to it and so that means that these two people with these different genes will have different outcomes whereas the epigenetics, what it's saying is that the environment will impact on both of those genes uh, potentially to the same extent so that it'll, it'll actually re it can reduce this one down a little bit and so it's and this one down a little bit so it's having a main effect on on the expression of those genes so what we're seeing is that the environment is passing through the genes to uh, the outcome so it's slightly different rather than actually uh, interacting with them so actually having so what we'd see with the interaction is that people with the genetic vulnerability would have far worse outcome compared to so someone without the genetic vulnerability when the stress occurs, rather than just the outcomes being reduced slightly in both cases. So it's... it's so, so if... Yeah, that's true. Like, and I have that in the model as well. Like if... Uh, if you ha are... If your chances of being exposed to a stressor are increased in both cases, and then that'll feed back into the fact that you've got a genetic vulnerability, and lead to, you know, the, you know that that an epigenetic explanation could lead to a gene by environment explanation. Is kind of what you're saying, I think. Yeah, yeah. Michael, have you done another analysis um, comparing um, the effects of people with a genetic vulnerability and people without the genetic vulnerability? ignoring the presence of some external shock. Yeah. So, did you have some findings which indicated that epsilon-4 carriers would have a lower uh, levels of health compared to yeah, non-epsilon-4? I'm, I'm wondering what would happen if you did this analysis um, and ignored the, the effect of the, um, the earthquake? Yeah, there's a small like marginal main effect of the gene on the self-rated health. So what you're seeing is that people with the risk gene have slightly lower self-rated health if you look at it without the presence of the earthquake, but that kind of gets knocked out uh, by the interaction term then. 
when you're actually considering the, the exposure to the disaster. So the idea, I suppose, is that, that that might be kind of, that relationship mightn't actually really exist. Yeah. Yeah, Munafo. Yeah. So, and my reading of these meta analysis was that, well, you know, we should forget about uh, looking for single genes. We should, um, for complex phenotypes such as mental health, physical health, we should go for, we should look at multiple genes. Yeah. And, but you find your results with uh, single genes. So uh, yeah. I wonder what you. Like, like uh, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the. the First of all, those, both those meta-analyses were for this single serotonin transporter gene, but you know you could probably apply the same logic if 20 of these studies were done. Maybe you'd get the same meta-analysis result for the APO gene. But I think the the future of this research will be multiple genes and you know well you know well controlled. So obviously looking at regions of interest on the genome that are actually you know theoretically supported. Uh, so you could have say 200. Uh, uh, supported genes and looking at uh, and if you can you know applying the appropriate corrections uh, statistically just to see is there you know what's having an effect and just to kind of continue doing that uh, will be kind of one way to kind of f further and and just to ma mainly uh, kind of get away from just looking at specific genes that uh, you know are sometimes replicated and sometimes not so I, I definitely think that, that that will be the future of the research uh, did, you try, did you publish that paper yet? No, not yet, no but uh, one thing, I actually have submitted it and I got it, uh, went to review and got knocked back mainly because uh, you know there, there, there was accusations of you know multiple gene comparisons you know that you know there's there's databases with fifty thousand genes, and they're like you know you picked one gene that worked and you published it, or you wanted to publish it, but like the uh, you know I the, there's a, there is actually it's a it's a it's a two thousand study, so it's not that new in that it only actually has that one gene marker in the study, so it's uh, you know it's kind of I guess I just needed to emphasize that a bit more or whatever, um, that it wasn't multiple testing or whatever. That was the only one there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For the, the it doesn't your ethnicity doesn't correlate with the your the, in this study anyway it doesn't correlate with which genes you have you know in terms of like there is no the epsilon four isn't overly represented in the mainlander group or anything like that or or underrepresented it but I'd like to see you know for this kind of study as well if we were taking into account did they leave back to the mainland are the mainlanders that are left you know different is that why 
there's no car you know it could be one reason why there's no correlation between education and exposure to the earthquake because the people that were highly educated uh, well I don't know if they yeah you, you could see different mi migration patterns anyway that could have results on the effects on the results Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's definitely a possibility. Um, but I, I, I don't think I can control for it. It's definitely a possibility. That's why the objective is a nicer measure in terms of you know it's not correlated with it shouldn't be correlated with the gene compared to the subjective measure might be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it sounds, yeah, so you're trying to, yeah, you're trying to see is there, it yeah, different, the way, yeah, yeah. The question is, how do your results compare to the Hurricane Katrina study that you cited at the beginning? Yeah. That was a much smaller data set. Uh, this is, um, the Kilpatrick study showing that there was, well, they, they didn't get, uh, they didn't have a, a gene by environment interaction per se, they had, so, so what they had was they, it interacted as well with social support. So, um, I suppose the result that I got was a, a little bit stronger in that you didn't, you know, they they wouldn't have seen the result I had. They would have seen there's no effect of, you know, exposure and genotype, but there is an effect when you consider if you have a higher low level of social support. So, that's kind of what I would have liked to have social support in this data as well to see was it a greater uh, effect amongst those with the low social support and the epsilon 4 gene which is probably what you'd expect. <coughs> yeah there's a, a statistical issue you might want to think about which is the power of your tests. Yeah. Because, so it may, may or may not be an issue when you have if you have small effect sizes and modest sam samples hmm. and modest could be hundreds or hmm. thousands then the power of your tests may be quite low. Yeah. So I know there's some the handedness literature where you're looking at something something correlated with handedness. Well like say depression, well, X percent have depression, ten percent are left handed. Yeah. So the number who are both is very small. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's that interaction. Yeah. Um, I, it, it doesn't just couple with that I just that's the area I know. Yeah, I think yeah, it's definitely a problem for like when, you know, eighteen percent exposed to the earthquake, you know, you're doing an interaction, you're losing a lot of power. Yeah. So I think there you are, know uh, there are there are ways around this sort of there are better tests, um, permutation tests or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, they like just check if it doesn't matter. Yeah. Definitely. Michael, this this survey um, sort of 
Uh, and I think from seeing you present on similar research before, it's across multiple countries. So can you do oh, No, the, the, this one's actually just for Taiwan. But um, it's uh, they have longitudinal data which they don't link to the all these biological measures. But uh, I've been I've been trying to you know f maybe get those linked up. So it'd be nice to know, uh, you know, Safed had held five years before the earthquake or whatever or a year. Before. Um, I don't think yeah unless I could do it with other data maybe. I guess one issue for discussion, which is the um, I mean when James Heckman was here, he gave. A three or four hour talk there on the issue of what he called uh, policy relevant uh, treatment effects. And what he meant by that was there was just two ways of establishing uh, causality, uh, or there, let's say one way of establishing causality. You, tr you try to find something that's not correlated with the, um, um, with the gene, but is correlated with the outcome. So you're trying to, you're trying to uh, uh, um, exogenize the effect, uh, so to speak. So, so you started this by saying that. You know the natural exper the natural disaster approach is better because it's less likely to be correlated with the gene than let's say a poor family environment or something. Mm. The problem is, in a lot of literature, they're really interested in the poor family yeah, environment yeah, yeah, yeah. because that's the thing that they're trying to change. Yeah. So in some sense, I mean, it's it's worth thinking about how you play that through because let, let's say let's say you know we do a hundred studies like this, and your result stands. I mean. The question is then, how would you relate that back to the other results that were that were that were um, you know when you do the meta-analysis of family environments and so on? Because yeah. um, it's it's a very it's you know it's a very different type of exposure, mm. and a lot of people in psychiatry and, and in clinical psychology and so on are directly interested in the family uh, intervention. So the extent to which you can map a beta coefficient that's taken from a natural disaster back to malleability in the family or so on, I think mm. it's it's. Um, interesting one. No, it's more of a yeah, than yeah, definitely. Okay, I thought that was great. Well, thank you. Very much. Oh, no, no, no.